Am I there? No, no, let me see. One, two, three, there it is. Are you there? Hello, good morning. All right, somebody left their uh, cowbells up here, uh, apparently. Um, and thank you for the water. That's awesome. That's sweet. All right, all right, John 21, last chapter of the gospel. You ready? We're going to close out John 21. This has been a, uh, literally, it will be a two-year series, sermon series. We have walked through John, uh, Exodus. We intertwine the narratives of Exodus and John. And now we're going to wrap up John here this morning, and we're going to launch into Exodus to finish up Exodus in September. Uh, and so if you have not been here with us, I'm going to give you a brief, brief, brief review. Uh, John's gospel is very unique. He gives us a very unique portrait of Jesus from the other three synoptic gospels, all right? So there's your, your big word for today, all right? I'm not going to have too many more of those, all right? Synoptic uh, means seen together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, seen together. The reason they're called that is because they see Jesus from a similar vantage point. John's is utterly different, utterly unique, and complementary. Uh, so if you, th if you were to imagine being off of the coast of Maui on the west side on Lahaina on a boat, uh, pretend that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're out on a boat, and they're painting a portrait of Maui from the same vantage point off of Lahaina. And so inevitably, there will be similarities in their portraits. There will be, uh, you'll see the West Maui Mountains, you'll see the Lahaina Harbor, you'll see various things. But they'll have a slightly different emphasis. Perhaps one will include the big L, Lahaina Luna, on the mountain, or one will omit that, or whatever it is, right? There will be small, subtle variations of emphasis based off the one making the portrait. John, on the other hand, would be as if you went up to the summit of Haleakala on a clear day at sunset, and he paints this portrait of Maui from the summit. It is very unique. There is 90% unique material in John from the other three, and it is a majestic portrait indeed. This is why, for many, it has been the favorite the favorite gospel of theirs. Uh, church history has labeled John's gospel with the picture of an eagle because of the soaring portrait of the Son of God, that Jesus Christ, the unique, the only begotten Son of God, the Word through whom all things were created, was made flesh, and He came to seek and to save His people by dying as a substitute for sinners in their place, bearing the wrath of God, and grants all people who will repent and believe. He grants all people eternal life. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And this has been unfolded for us since 2016. We have been doing this with John. 20 chapters. We've spent about five months, if you think about it, five months in John, which may sound like a long time, but we have actually scratched the surface. We have gone very quickly uh, through John's gospel. And we've walked through these 20 chapters. Jesus has come, he has died, and he has risen again. He's appeared to his disciples, to Mary, to Thomas, doubting Thomas, and now chapter 21. This is the epilogue, the final words, the closing of the book. In modern terms, if you were watching a Marvel movie, this would be the after credit scenes, the final clip when all the credits have rolled out, giving you the teaser for the next 
movie, the next setup. This is what this is in chapter 21. Everything else important's already happened. He's already died. He's already done his miracles. He's already risen. He's alive, and he's about to ascend. And so what is John doing with chapter 21? He could have ended at chapter 20. He could have. But John in his epilogue is going to close out the book. He's going to wrap up loose ends. He's going to bring us back to Peter. Remember Peter? Peter, the one who denied his master, the leader of the apostles, the the strong, bold Peter, put to flight by the questions of a little girl. Aren't you his follower? And so for us in here, all of us in here this morning, there's going to be lessons. So I'd ask you, by way of engaging you in the beginning, have you ever failed at anything? Have you ever maybe failed massively, very publicly, messed up, made a mistake, a blunder that is irreversible? You wish it were. Or maybe you will, or maybe you're afraid of such errors. Or maybe you're here and you find yourself paralyzed often by fear, anxiety, worry. For all of us, this final chapter will be very, very instructive, very hopeful. And the message John leaves ringing in his ear is also the title of my sermon. The the message ringing in the ears of the readers for us are the words of Jesus, follow me, follow me. So let's pray and see what this chapter has for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your perfect word that is able to restore our soul, to renew our spirits, to feed us and nourish us that we might grow strong and, and be mighty in word and deed. May it have its intended effect this morning. May sinners turn from sin and walk in the Spirit. May, uh, may those who have struggled with failure get a glimpse of the God of all grace who restores those who have fallen. And may you empower us, invigorate us to leave here in fearlessness and boldness to proclaim the gospel. And may you bring in a miraculous catch. And Lord, I do ask that you would be with uh, those who are likewise preaching the gospel across this island, with our brother, Pastor Jim and Paipala, with Jay Wright, Jay Armstrong, Steve Kanashiro, Paul Kanashiro, and many others who are preaching. May you bless your word as as it is spoken to your people, and may your sheep be fed in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. Three points, all right? Three points. Number one, uh, fish, an unbreakable net, or fishing, an unbreakable net. Number two, uh, feed, a gracious restoration. And number three, follow, follow, an ironclad focus. Fish, feed, follow. We'll walk through the whole chapter, all right? So uh, the first section in 1 through 14, fishing. You find uh, Peter along with six other of the apostles uh, going out, and what are they doing? Peter goes back to doing what Peter was found doing when the Gospels opened, doesn't he, as do the rest of them. Peter, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Now, now why did they go fishing? What, what was the purpose of their going fishing? Uh, John doesn't spend much time 
on that, and neither will we. Was it because he was defecting from his original call? Was he depressed or downcast, or, or was he confused, or was he just trying to feed himself, or was it some blend of all of them? Uh, we just don't know. But nonetheless, they go fishing, all of them. And that night, all night, they catch nothing. It was a junk trip. Uh, that seems to be the way many fishing trips go, uh, at least the ones I've been a part of. You go out, you do all this work, and it's fun, but you catch nothing, and it's a good time somehow. They go out, these fishermen, they toil all night, they get all their nets out, their gear, their boats, only to come back empty-handed with nothing to show. And verse 4 kind of says, just as day was breaking, and that is John's literary device, that is literally, day is breaking, but also literally, in a figurative way, they are coming in more and more realization. The darkness is passing, and they are seeing the light of what is actually happening around them as Christ is risen from the grave. And as day was breaking, the sun is rising, Jesus appears on the shore, but they don't know it's him. And he appears and he asks them a question. Children, do you have any fish? Now, the Greek is actually more negative, and he's, he's pulling it out for them. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? There's a negative there. You don't have any fish, do you? They answer him, no. Just cast the net on the right side, and you'll find some. They cast their nets down, and all of a sudden, they can't even haul in the catch because of how, how many fish there are. And about this time, John and the rest of the disciples start having some deja vu. This is a recalling them to an earlier period in life when this happened in their lives as well. And, and John, being the, the watchful one, says to Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. And I love this part. I always think of uh, anytime I, I, I come to this part, I just can't help. I love this part, what it says. Verse 7, Peter's response. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment because he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. He doesn't even wait for the fish. Forget about the large catch of fish. He just throws himself into the sea. <laughs> that's, that's Peter. He's just impetuous. He just goes forward uh, without thinking, and he goes. I always think of Forrest Gump when this happens, right? That scene after, after all the years, Forrest Gump, he finally has his shrimping boat, and Lieutenant Dan appears on the docks. He hasn't seen him for a long time, and, and Lieutenant Dan, he just jumps in and <laughs> swims over to see him, and Lieutenant Dan's like, and, and he says, yeah, I got my sea legs. And you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dan, right? <laughs> you can't help of this when Peter just, he sees his Lord. And he just throws himself into the sea, swims to him. Eventually, they get to the shore, and they find a fish, a fish breakfast, fish and bread for breakfast, and a charcoal fire. Interesting that there's a charcoal fire mentioned here. The only other time in John's gospel that we see a charcoal fire is where? Chapter 18. They're warming themselves by a charcoal fire the night the Lord is betrayed. And Peter is then questioned 
and by the light of that fire, he denies his Savior. Setting the scene, Jesus is setting the scene for what's about to come regarding Peter. And amazingly, John comments about the huge catch of fish, and this is what he says in verse 11. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled ashore the catch, and it says there were so many, the net was not torn. The net was not torn. Interesting. Why is this interesting? Because we have two miracles before our eyes. One is the large catch of fish. The second is the nets not being torn. If you remember in Luke chapter 5, the first time this happened, that, that deja vu flashback, in Luke chapter 5, uh, you don't have to go there, you can go there, but they have a similar thing. Cast your net down and you'll have a catch. And that time it said there were so many fish the nets were breaking. And so they started throwing the fish into the boat and then the, the boats began to sink. But this time, something different happens. This time, the nets don't break. So what can we take away from this right at the outset? What can we take away? First, the disciples had a hard lesson in remembering Jesus' words from John 15, 5. Do you remember? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And the apostles received a tiresome reminder that night. No matter how much skill or experience or how great you are or how great you think you are at your job or at your profession or at your sport or at anything in life, apart from Jesus, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. And so I wrote this, all through the night you may toil and strive, yet only in Christ will your labors thrive. And they receive that hard lesson. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We also see the Lord in his risen, glorified, exalted state does something, doesn't he? What does he do for them? They come in from toiling all night. They're tired. He has breakfast for them. He made them breakfast. He cooked it for them, and it was ready for them. He, our Lord, even in this exalted status, displaying incredible humility, incredible service, he makes these men who abandoned him and denied him breakfast. Beloved, if your king serves his disciples like this, how much more should we be zealous for good works? How much more should we be willing to serve those who likewise sin against us, who wrong us? And last in this point, he feeds his apostles that they might feed others and bring in a miraculous catch. He feeds his apostles that they might feed others and bring in a miraculous 
catch. If I was going to try and sum up this chapter uh, in one train of thought, all, how, how does this fit with the next portion and the next portion, how they all fit together as we follow Christ and are fed by him and he feasts, he gives us a feast, he prepares a feast for us as we are fed by and through Christ, we are then able to feed others and see a miraculous catch brought in. As we follow Christ and are fed by and through Christ, he feeds us and we are able to feed others and bring in a miraculous catch. That would be how these three narrative points stick together, come together. And this is what we see him doing. He feeds his apostles that they may feed others. So this picture of the fish coming in is similar from Luke 5, yet different. And remember in Luke 5, he says to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Make you fishers of men. And that time the nets broke because they were so full of fish. And yet the message on this side of the resurrection, the message after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with the risen Lord Jesus at the helm, is that the gospel net that they are to cast is unbreakable. The word of God that they proclaim will bring in a remarkable catch. And shortly after this, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter would fish for men, and in that sermon he would see 3,000 converted in one day. That net is unbreakable. So, beloved, the message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So, live it and meditate it and apply it and speak it in every aspect of your life. How is the gospel reflected in your marriage? When we think about living it, how is the gospel reflected in how you spend your money and how you spend your time? and how you're planning for retirement, and how you're going to school. How is the gospel reflected in all these things? Or, or have you, has, it, has the thought even crossed your mind? How, how? Is it supposed to? Yes, this will be fruitful, fruitful material for you to think on and meditate and discuss. How is my life living and speaking the gospel? And see how the Lord uses us together. Number two, feed. That was number one, fish, an unbreakable net. Number two, feed, verses 15 to 19, is a gracious restoration. Now, after breakfast, Jesus calls Peter. Pete, come over here. I'm talk to you, Pete. Let's talk. And all the disciples. Jesus begins to do heart surgery. See, Jesus is going to go, and he's going to repair, and he's going to restore Peter in a very public manner. Now, why is this? Peter, if you remember, the leader of the Twelve. He, he is the de facto spokesman of the apostles everywhere we see him. His falling was very public. His boasting before his fall was very public. And it's now recorded for us in this gospel. It's amazing that it's recorded here, if you think about it. This lends to the authenticity of the gospel. Other ancient religions, other uh, ancient textbooks, histories, they 
omit the failings of the heroes. They omit the failings of their founders, of the kings. In the book of Allah, you will not find any failings of Muhammad. They praise him. They excuse, make excuses for them. But here, you have all warts shown in everything. No watered down, Peter fell. It's remarkable. There's only one, his, one hero, one main hero in the Bible who's spotless. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And now Jesus gets to work in the presence of the other six in restoring Peter. And he asks him a series of questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What does he call him? Simon. Interesting he calls him Simon. He gave him a different name, didn't he? What was the name he gave him? Peter. He gave him a different name, but he calls him Simon. Why? Because Peter means rock, and upon this rock, upon his confession of faith that Christ is the Son of the living God, upon that he would build his church. But Simon didn't really profess that, did he? At his denial, he denied it. And so Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? What does he mean? What is he asking? More than what? What is these? I would suggest it's more than these other apostles. Do you love me more than these other six? Do you love me more than these? Why would he ask him that? Do you remember what Peter said before Jesus died? Even though all fall away, yet I will not forsake you. I love you, Jesus. I am so devoted to you. These guys, they're good, but even if they fall away, not me. I'm ready to die. So Jesus begins opening his heart. Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he begins to teach Peter a lesson in humility. And Peter, less confident now and less boastful, now rests his answer in divine knowledge. Yes, Lord, you know. You know all things. Don't make me say it. You know, you know what my heart is. You know the secrets of my heart. You know my failings. You know, Lord. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Feed them. Three times Jesus is going to do this by this charcoal fire. And the third time it says Peter was what? Grieved. The third time Jesus asked him, he is grieved. And now you can almost imagine the, the tension. If you, if you were like, if this was a movie and you see Peter and, and Jesus asking him the third time, you can almost see this like pause in Peter and his eyes welling up with tears. We know this was painful for him because the third time it says he went and wept bitterly after he denied Jesus. It says Jesus looked at him right in the eyes when it happened. And so you can imagine the pain that this is all calling to mind of his failure. I don't imagine it was a comfortable conversation for Peter. With each round of questions, the Lord in his restoration, whereas Peter once denied his love for Christ, he is now with each successive round of questions confessing his love for Christ. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep 
Tend my lambs. Feed my lambs. Each one being overturned, not denying, but confessing his love for Christ. Now, what is the application here? There's an application. There's a ton. <laughs> we could spend the rest of the sermon here, all right? But there's a ton of application. There, first, humility. Peter thought too highly of himself. And we are told over and over, do not think too highly of yourselves. Let, t- let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. He thought too highly of himself and too little of Christ. Now, this lesson in humility had a profound impact on Peter. How do I know that? Many years later, Peter would write a letter that we call 1 Peter. And he would write this letter to a group of Christians who were being persecuted. Physically, in every sense of the word persecution, they were getting it. He wrote them a letter. 1 Peter 5, 5-6. This is what it says. Listen, just, just remember, this is Peter writing this letter, all right? This same Peter in 21 writing this letter. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter lived that. He can write that. He knows exactly what he's saying there. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he, at the proper time, he may exalt you. See, Peter was being exalted at the proper time in John 21. So let me ask you, beloved, do you find yourself comparing yourself to other Christians and feeling superior in your devotion, in your wisdom, maybe your dedication, your plans, and so on. Whenever you think about another Christian or you hear about another Christian's actions or failures or successes or so on and so forth, do you, do you find yourself coming out superior in that comparison? Often. Or maybe you might think something like this. Let me tease this out. If they just listen to me, If they would just do what I said to do, this would go so much better. Things would be so much smoother. Or, do you find yourself crossing your arms, rolling your eyes, huffing, puffing, turning red in the face, becoming argumentative when somebody doesn't like your ideas or suggestions? Beloved, this is pride. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's what led to Peter's downfall. So I want to encourage you, hear this saint, not Pastor Randy, hear this saint, Peter, who's been there. Clothe yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with humility. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You don't have to fight. You don't have to argue or cross your hands or gossip about how your plans are better. Trust in God's purposes. Trust in God's plans. Trust that He knows what He's doing. And you know this, when things don't go your way, you know they're always going His way. His will will be done. So we can rest in that when ours is not.
Peter learned about humility. He also learned about grace. See, Peter tasted in a new way what grace was like. All along the way, Jesus had shocked Peter after the resurrection. See, instead of anger and chastising, which is what I would frankly expect if I did something like that, instead of anger, chastising, belittling, the first words of Jesus to him are, Shalom, peace be to you. Instead of anger, he gets peace. Instead of punishment, he gets breakfast, a fish breakfast. And instead of distance, he gets restored. His public sin was dealt with publicly. It had to be. And his grace was also granted publicly. That's what the Lord is doing. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. That's what he's doing. He's giving him, he's restoring him publicly. This also had an impact on Peter. It's so interesting to read 1 Peter in light of everything we know about Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. This comes up again in Peter's words to those struggling Christians. He says this in 1 Peter 5, 10. And after you have suffered a little while, I love what he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of what? of all grace. That's the way he experienced God. That's the way he knew Christ, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's Peter's testimony. He's, he's counseling out of what the Lord has done for him, the God of all grace. He's going to restore you He's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you and establish you. Beloved, know this. This is the Lord's words to you if you are struggling. Peter had humility. He had a lesson in grace. He also had a lesson in failure. Failure. Because Peter received grace, he was able to learn something about failure. See, his failure wasn't the end but rather a step in his growth and in his conformity to Christ. So grace, we could say, grace literally transforms our understanding of failure if we're in Christ. Because of the grace of God shown to him, Peter did not need to be paralyzed by fear of failing. But instead, grace transformed his fearfulness into a fearlessness and fueled his faith and made him bold. Grace changes our perspective on failing. Many of us, I would venture to guess, hesitate to share the gospel, to speak about God with others, in part, what I hear over and over again, and what happens in my own heart is in part because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. We're afraid of messing up. We're afraid, what if, what if I say the wrong thing and this person goes to hell because of me? Beloved, don't think too highly of yourselves. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Amen? But we have this fear, this hesitancy based on our fear of doing the wrong thing. Or maybe it's not sharing the gospel. Maybe it's, maybe it's doing something that you know God wants you to do. 
and our fear paralyzes us. But what if we let God's grace change our perspective of failure? What if instead of seeing it as the end, we see it as a component of our growth into Christ-likeness? Let me give you an illustration to help with this. Imagine you set out from your house to go to Costco. Mondays are our Costco days. So if you go to Costco on Monday, you will see me every week there, all right? Imagine you go from your house to Costco. That's your destination. And the first red light you hit, you turn around and go home. Forget it. I'm done. It's over. I've derailed in my track to my destination. I'm going home. You say, that's crazy. That's ridiculous, right? And it is. It is. We don't do that. Why? Because we see red lights as expected obstacles on our way to our destination. Especially if you don't go down Kahumanu and Hana Highway. You see red lights, you expect them, and you prepare for them, and you move through them. And so it is with failure. It is an expected aspect of the Christian life that by God's grace and by Christ's victory can be turned into helpful points of growth in your life to make you more like Jesus and more humble. The Proverbs, I love the Proverbs, a righteous man stumbles seven times and rises again. And so it is with our failures. So I ask, have you failed spectacularly, publicly? Maybe you carry that guilt and shame with you everywhere. I hope you leave here this morning full of hope, knowing that Christ, your Savior, gladly restores you if you come to him and follow him as Peter did. You don't have to run from him. You don't have to make excuses or blame shifts. None of that was operative here. Peter knew it. Jesus knew it. And your failure doesn't have to hinder your effectiveness for the gospel. Hear the instructions of Christ. In light of your failure, in light of the grace that restores and establishes and strengthens and confirms, hear the words of Christ. Feed my sheep. Be busy about his purposes. Press on. You still have a role to play in this. So I ask, play it and follow him. So that would be a gracious restoration feed. And final, we'll close on number three, follow. Fish, feed, follow. An ironclad focus. I love this, an ironclad focus. Jesus' final words to Peter, closing, ringing in our ears, Follow me. Jesus tells, after this, Peter a prophecy. After this restoration, he gives Peter a prophecy about how he's going to die. And whenever he says, stretched out his hands, your hands will be stretched out. That's always, always in all the ancient literature referring to crucifixion. And Peter, being Peter still, he's restored, yes, but he's still Peter known for taking his eyes off of Christ and putting it on other things, turns and looks at John and says, what about him? What about him? That's how I'm going to die. How's he going to die? Jesus replies in verse 22, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
you follow me. He doesn't answer him. He actually kind of gives him a slight rebuke, doesn't he? What is that to you? It's none of your business, Peter. Follow me. Follow me. And with those words, John begins to wind down his gospel. What's ironic about this is that Peter would actually get to prove his love for Christ again. He would get to confess Christ again to the point of death when his life was on the line. He would, in fact, get this second chance that some of you long for. If only I had a second chance to do it right. Peter got it. And this time, the aged saint would not deny his master. Not by a servant girl, not by an emperor. Nothing would cause him to swerve or waver in his commitment to Christ. And Peter would go on, church history records for us, Peter would go on and be crucified to death like Jesus under Roman persecution. Now, there is a tradition that states that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified like his Savior. That may be the case. The reality is, is we just don't know. The tradition is sketch at most. But we do know he was crucified. He was crucified. And this time he would confess and be faithful to the end. So what are some final observations from this follow me, this ironclad focus? First, we should avoid, if at all possible, unhelpful speculation of our lives. We should avoid unhelpful comparisons. Maybe how one brother or one sister has it easier than another. Or how, how come one ministry is full of difficulty and the, the other one is not. Or why does one believer become famous and another becomes obscure? We're each simply to follow Christ. Follow me. So I ask you, beloved, stop comparing yourself with others. Remember I said, do you compare yourself with others and come out on top? I would just say stop comparing yourself with others, period. The answer is not to, okay, I'll compare myself and come out on bottom. I'm way more sinful than you. <laughs> no. How about you not focus on yourself at all and follow Christ? See, we often do this, and it can be discouraging in the other way where we deduce the strength of our relationship by comparing ourselves with others and we come out on bottom. And we decide, oh, I must be a poor Christian. I'm a bad believer. What's wrong with me? No, 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 no. Simply follow Christ. Whatever that looks like, whatever your lot in life is, whatever his providential care has given to you, whatever difficulties or hardships or eases you may find in your life or blessings, follow me, follow Christ. Now, some Christians will be called to literally bear the cross, literally, and die for the faith. And some will be called to bear the cross and live for him. All are called to be faithful and to trust him. Close with this, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's masterpiece, uh, 
Second best-selling book in the English language. We're walking through it in our small groups right now. If you're not a part of our small group, it's not too late to get in and jump in with this book that was written in the 1600s. But in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory of the Christian life. The main uh, hero of the story, his name is Christian, is on his way from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's heaven. And in this journey, he has partners, people that come along him, and one of these partners is faithful, Christian and faithful, walking along the, the narrow path to the celestial city, and, and Christian and faithful encounter a town, a wicked town. The name of the town is called Vanity Fair, Vanity Fair. And they come and they find this town, and they're, very, they're, they're like strangers in this town. They're outcasts. They, they dress differently. They, they speak differently. They have different interests. And the people of the town take note of this. And before long, they're arrested, imprisoned, beaten, and faithful is brought on trial. A very unjust trial. The judge is named Mr. Hategood. Bunyan's allegories, you don't have to read hard to see what he's talking about. The judge, Mr. Hategood, the verdict comes, and the penalty is death. In the most gruesome, torturous way, they beat him, torture him, and eventually kill him. Afterwards, Christian is let miraculously go, kind of like, Paul and Acts and Peter and Acts. He's set free by God, and Christian continues his journey without faithful who is martyred, and he begins to sing this song about faithful. This could have easily been written about Peter, and this is what he sings. Well, faithful, you have faithfully professed unto your Lord. With him you will be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights, are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, faithful, sing, and let your name survive, for though they killed you, yet you are alive. And so it is with Peter. Though they killed him, yet he is alive. And beloved, with that, hear the words of Jesus, closing the gospel, follow me, follow me, in verse 25, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may you grant us to be faithful, to be found faithful like Peter. Those who have stumbled and struggled, may they turn from sin and find that there is life in Christ, that there is grace, grace, grace that is greater than all our sin in Christ. And may they live and they see that your grace turns us to be fearless and may we be bold in our confessions of faith. May we be a people who collectively and individually proclaimed the glories of the only begotten Son who is crucified and risen again. And Lord, may we leave here 
Beholding with our eyes, our ears, our senses, your glory and creation, and may we ponder the manifold works of God, and may you blow our minds and lead us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.